All right, everybody, thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us today. I'm here with an old friend of mine, um, a mentor of mine in some ways, named Michael Eisenberg. Um, he's about nine years older than me. He's got eight kids. He's the head of Aleph, which is a brand new venture capital fund in Israel. He's a very famous person in that world. And um, I think the Midas list is what I heard. The number one venture capitalist investor multiple times. He was like the number one guy in Israel. And he only invests in Israeli companies. So he's got vision, he has insight, but he also happens to be an author and a Torah scholar, a Tanakh scholar, really. And so invited him out here to the farm today. Um, he wrote a new book. Where is it? The Tree of Life in Prosperity. I've read it from cover to cover. I really enjoyed it. It's not a book about how to make money, but it's a book about how to see the economy, how to see money, how to see um, the world in an economic lens through a Torah lens. Is that fair? That is very fair. Excellent. And so um, just a little bit of background just for me, because I told Michael this story earlier, I just want to make sure that our audience has it. Now, people that know our show, they know that I wake up very early in the morning. I didn't always do that, I was a night guy. And I was maybe 19 years old. Michael is a study partner, a chavrusa, with my brother Micah in Katamon. I finally wake up, I'm not sleeping until 11, I already wake up at like 7.30 in the morning, I'm already at shul, at minion, I'm so proud of myself. And I turn to Micah and Michael, they're sitting and learning, and Michael comes to me and says, listen, I've already finished my morning run, I've already started my learning, I've already davened, and look, you just get to shul right now? And I'm like, wow. I want to be like Mike when I'm older. Like, I want to be like Mike. That's like the thing from Michael Jordan. Absolutely. I want to be like Mike. So that's fun to come full circle now, because now Michael saw our farm, he wants to be like Jeremy now. <laughs> Okay, fine. So let's get down, let's get down, down to business. Um, I what, told you I got a farm, <laughs> yeah, that's but funny. it's not like this one. <laughs> All right, I got shepherdesses. Okay, yeah, you do. All right, so here's the deal. I want to know now. You wake up in the morning now. What's your morning routine nowadays? Because to do what you do with as many things that are on your plate, you have to be very organized. You have to develop very good habits. What does your morning look like? I get up in the morning. Uh, what time? Early between five and five thirty generally. Okay. Um, get my act together basically, go to synagogue, uh, pray in the mornings, and uh, then I sit down and write now. I used to be studying with your brother and and other study partners, but my study partner now is really my editor uh, because I'm in the series of these books coming out. This is the first one's come out in English, three have come out in Hebrew already on the first three books of of the Torah. Uh, the fourth one is coming in Hebrew, and the second one is coming in English. So writing takes up all my study time right now. And then I get my kids out in the morning, and I go to work. But your first, let's say, hour or two hours of the day, they're just dedicated to davening and to learning and to writing. Correct. Excellent. Okay, so then, like, when did you wake up this morning? Later, because last night I was out with my son uh, very late at night. We finished at work very late last night at 9.15, and I went out for dinner with my son who was in Tel Aviv, and I got home only after midnight only to find one of my other kids had just come home. And so I got to I bed wanted after. to be awake for this interview. This is a big deal. Yeah, so I woke up at 6.15, 6.20 this morning. But what about your exercise? I exercise when this morning. When do you do that? Oh, so in the morning you do exercise? Yeah. After the kids? Uh, generally, yeah. Okay, and what do you do? What's your, what's your routine? How uh, far do you run? If I'm near a swimming pool, I try to go swimming now because I've gotten old and creaky. Um, but most mornings I'm actually on the elliptical for about a half hour. And what do you do when you're on the elliptical? Are you listening to something, watching something, just in your head? Depends on the day. Sometimes I'll watch something like intelligent, like a video about uh, cryptocurrency, synthetic biology, and some days I'll just watch NFL highlights or (laughs) NBA highlights because you got to clear the head somehow. All right, how many hours do you sleep in a night on average? 
Oh, I don't know. It used to be less. Now I'm, I hope I'm up to about six now. Six. Well, I sleep seven. Six is good. That's yeah. really impressive. All right, let's say then. I'm trying to sleep more. What are you reading nowadays? Or is reading not a part of the pro process? Oh, no, reading is a huge part of the process. I read a lot of books in a year. I'm, I, I generally read three to four books at the same time. Um, a little, I guess, uh, ADD in that way. No, I get that. I, uh, right now I'm reading about the digital interference of China um, with digital infrastructure a book by Jacob Helberg. Um, I'm reading a uh, Jewish intellectual um, thought book by a guy named Rabbi Dr. Michael Avraham. Uh -huh. um, I've already read one book of his trilogy. I'm on the second book of his trilogy, like 600 pages each. It takes a while to read those books. Um, I'm reading a, a business book by Michael Mabusian on valuations right now. So how do you and divide what you're reading? There's like some that's Torah, there's some intellectual stuff, there's business stuff, there's just interest, or is it just random, like what comes, what captures you? A lot of it's what people recommend to me, and then I kind of sift through them, and a lot of it is just what I'm interested in at the time. I'm reading a book about some of the rabbis of the Middle Ages now, Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbi Yaakov Ishtam, who, uh, Rabbeinu Tam, who lived in the, uh, I guess, 1100s. Um, just what interests me. Hmm. So you spend a lot of time in the car. You work in Tel Aviv or do you work in Jerusalem? I work in Tel Aviv, I live in Jerusalem. Okay, so you're spending a lot of time in the car. A lot of time in the car. What are you doing while you're in the car? Uh, I'm working. You're just working? Yeah. There's no, okay. I'm working. All right, so I would say the thing that attracted me the most about you, at least way back when, you seemed to be like really driven. You were very driven then. And this was before all your successes with WeWork and all the successes with all your lemonades. And it was just, you were still like 26, you were just figuring it out still, but you were like driven. Do you feel like you still have that drive in you? Or now that you kind yes, of like... Yes, most definitely. I work as long days as I, as I ever did, and I'm involved in various philanthropic efforts, and, it, and writing the books takes a huge amount of time. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I was driven as much as I think. I had a rabbi in the ninth grade, and he and I weren't exactly on the same page, but you can always take something away even for people you're not on the same page with. And he said something that had a huge influence on my life. He said that uh, there's no better English expression than killing time, because once it's passed, it's dead and gone forever. And that had a huge impact on me. You know, the thing, we're in this world, for however many years we're in this world, we got time. That's what we got. And if God blesses, up with, blesses us with energy and creativity or money or family, you know, those are blessings you have to make use of uh, for good things. So I try to use time really wisely. I don't have too many hobbies. Okay, I like that. So you're saying that you feel the pressure of time, bala bai dochek, it's limited here. Yeah. It's motivation. But motivation comes from the word motive. Meaning, there's got to be a why here. Why are you so interested to maximize your time? What is pushing you forward to invest in these companies, the philanthropic work that you're doing? Something's going on there. What is the why that's behind Michael Eisenberg? I think in the Torah, one of the things you take away from the Torah is that this is a baton race. The world is a baton race. And just like Avram, Abraham passed it on to Isaac, Yitzchak, and Yitzchak passed it on to Yaakov, and then now to Joseph and in Egypt and to Moses and to Joshua. And this is a long baton race to make the world a better place and enable a broader swath of our people and the global population to be successful in this baton race. You know, from the time that, that Avraham, Abraham comes to the land, we know one thing about him. First of all, he was already wealthy in his homeland. When he lived in the Golan, the exile, right before coming to the land of Israel, the land of Canaan at the time, he was a wealthy man. And he comes with his wealth, and it tells us that he brought a bunch of people with him, the, the, the souls that he gathered up, plus his nephew, 
We know one biographical fact about his nephew. You know what it is? Who his father was? And that he died, and that the father died. This boy, Lot, was an orphan, and Avram took care of the orphan. And so the father of this Bataan race that we're in right now empowered all these souls that he gathered in his you know, ancestral homeland and the orphan. And that's the message that we got to carry with us. So our lives are meant to empower other people, let people live independent lives, because Lot goes on to, even goes, goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, becomes independently successful, independent himself, even though he's an orphan. And so our job and everything we do, and you're doing it well here on this farm also, is to lift other people up, make society more successful, make humanity more successful. And in my view, in the 21st century, we're super blessed, particularly here in Israel, we have technology. So our reach is ever farther. I mean, look at this, your video will be seen everywhere around the world. The technology is developed here, everything from drip irrigation that makes us able to feed people around the world uh, better, you know, digital health technologies, let people be healthier at home. Those are all things we can now export from here digitally. What an opportunity to raise up humanity to make people more independent and more successful. And that's, that's what I think we're here for. So my goal is when I leave this world is that we'll have raised up you know, billions of people around the planet you know, to be independent and successful. And that'll come from Israel. I love that. I just want you to help me define the word successful. Because I think people see you and they see the glitz and the Tel Aviv and the venture capital. And a lot of times success, definitely in the Western world, is just about making a buck and raising the standard of living and raising people's, you know, giving them parnasa, giving them jobs, making them more wealthy. That's usually how like success is defined. Like is he successful or not successful? So at least I think in the story of Avraham, his greatest success was that he left this legacy of taking care of an orphan, which until today is mentioned 36 times in the Torah, where until today has inspired your farm that are taking care of kids that are a little bit troubled and inspired our farm that have people here that need a home. And so that's, I mean, yes, he was very wealthy at some points in his life. He was also poor at some points in his life, but his success was always maintained by the integrity of who he was. So can you help us define what you would like to see? So like, leave the world more successful. What, what does success mean? I, I continue, whenever I use the word successful, it's paired with the word enabling people to be independent. And so independence and success together has a bunch of meanings to it. One is they can be on their own. They have the self-confidence, the abilities, the tools of the trade, not just to make a living, but to feel good on their own so that they can enable somebody else to be successful. The key for being successful is to enable somebody else to be successful. And by the way, it's not financial per se. It is if you're building a good family that is a model that helps other people, you are successful. If you have built a business that gives other people jobs, even if you're not you know, bringing in tons of profit for yourself, you are super successful because you've enabled other people to be uh, independent. If you have built a community that takes in other people, if you are a teacher that raises up students, I have a rabbi I mentioned before who gave me this one nugget, one nugget, he's successful. And I think that's super important. And we live in a world where people are doubting their self-confidence right now because they're seeing all sorts of things online and they got this bizarre view of what success is. It's like the Kardashian view of success. Right. That's not success. That's a facade. Who are they enabling to be successful and independent on their own rather than feeling not good about themselves? And so this is what we're here for. It's independent and successful or successful and independent. And one of the points I make in the book, by the way, is that I contrast Abraham and Andrew Carnegie. 
Andrew Carnegie wrote a treatise on wealth. And cut a lot to it. He says, some people are successful, some people are not. And it's the job of the financially successful people, in this case, to paternalistically take care of those who are not. That's different than Abraham. That's different than Abraham. Abraham enables Lot to be his orphan nephew to be successful himself. They both emerge from Egypt after they're forced there with the, with the famine. They, Abraham emerges more successful, and Lot emerges independently wealthy, so he can make his own decisions. <laughs> Super valuable. That's different than being a paternalist and kind of giving handouts to people. We want to enable people to be independent. I was just um, learned that the word hero in its roots means defender. It means that you have enough strength for two. You're strong enough to also defend the other. And I think that like, you know, these heroes of the Bible, that's what they're there for. They're here to like, guide us what is the real superhero in the world. I think that's a really beautiful definition. Let's say you look back and you've become kind of like a, a legend in Israel. That's no, you've got to knock yourself. Just a second, it's just the truth. Who were your mentors? I've had different ones through life. Obviously my parents, who you know. Uh, your mom no. just must be beside herself. <laughs> <laughs> My, my mom, true story, my, you know, my, my mom used to say that she used to pray for mediocre children because the line between, like, uh, really brilliant and really outstanding and crazy was really thin. Um, and uh, I used to I always... I that line very well. Yeah, it used to bother me, but I think she's right, by the way. You know, like age 40, I call her, so I think, Mom, you're right. Um, you know, so obviously So your parents, parents, that's good. Yeah, my wife. My wife was like the paragon, I say this about her in the book, of kind of improving ethics and morals all, all, all the time. Uh, really a paragon. And I've had a couple of people throughout uh, my life who've had a big impact on me. There was a, uh, a rabbi in the 11th grade who, who gave up being a partner at a law firm to, to teach high school kids. And he was very impactful on my kind of intellectual path and how to really look at things critically. Rabbi Michael Hecht. I have tremendous gratitude uh, towards him. And he then sent me to the Shiva that I went to, Shiva Taratzion, which is not that far from here, right. um, where two other people, uh, actually many people there, but you know, two people stand out, Rabbi Lichtenstein, who was just a towering figure of ethics and morals, and, and who I referenced in the book, and Rabbi Amital, who both headed this yeshiva. Rabbi Amital's case, he challenged me in a strange uh, interaction. I, I may have told this to you in the past, but he, uh, I'm there in a room with like 15 guys, and I said, oh, Rabbi Amital, um, is there a bigger commandment to settle the land in Israel in an, in an uninhabited place like this, where we are right now? Or if I went to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, it'd be the same kind of fulfillment of this commandment, biblical commandment, to settle the land. And he looked at me and says, it's nonsense, all nonsense. What you need to do is make Aliyah move to Israel and set up a factory that will employ 10,000 people who can earn an honest and decent living. I go, whoa, a rabbi who just talked about me about business and the economy and how to empower other people around us and discipline. And I was like, it was a moment. And basically at that moment, I decided I'd move to Israel and try to empower 10,000 people to get jobs. Um, I never built a factory because that's not the economy we live in anymore. Right. But, you know, this is what kind of, what am I driven by, by the way, going back to that, is to try to create as many well-paying, fulfilling, independent making jobs as possible here and, and, and around the world. And that's really due to Rabbi Amital and, uh, and, uh, and his challenge at that point. I was 19 when oh, that happened. I love that. One of the parts in your book, we're talking about Esav and how you rejected the birthright. And you brought um, a commentary that I didn't know about, but it's a machloket, it's a dispute between the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban, yeah. where the Ibn Ezra says, I despised it because uh, they were kind of poor at that time. He's like, what's a birthright worth anyway? This guy is a schlepper. 
And the Ramban says, no, on the contrary, and you sort of brought these two sides where you can read the story and they're both pretty strong arguments. I liked both of them and I'd like you for bringing that out to me. Um, but what I kind of want to bring it around full circle is that all of the Avot were wealthy and all of them were poor at different stages in their life. And that's really important. I'm and, not convinced that Abraham was poor for what it's worth well, ever. Oh, let me just tell you. I'll be, can, I can convince you because okay. it says it right there. He's promised by God, Lech lecha yeah. and you're going to come to the land of Israel and I'm going to make it amazing for you. He comes to Israel and the finances are so difficult that he almost starves to death. Yeah, that's okay. fair. That's poor. That's that fair. is destitute poor. That's as poor as you can get where there's no food to eat. Come on. Yeah. Thank it, you. So then he goes down to Mitzrayim, he comes back up, and then all of a sudden he's it, rich, gold, he like comes back a king. But he We can interpret it differently, though, that, okay, that, it, that his wealth is at risk because of the famine. I'm saying it's not obvious, as whereas in the case of uh, Jacob, it's very clear, right? In the case of Isaac, I think it goes into this argument between Rabbi Abraham, Ibrahim, Ezra, and the Ramban. And uh, in the case of Abraham, I think you can interpret it multiple ways. But either way. Okay. I think that he was definitely in a place where he wasn't riding the... Uh, I agree. The, it was famine. Famine. He's in, and, he's, and he's in Israel and he tries to stay as long as he can because he doesn't want to leave Eretz Israel. But he's yeah. like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Absolutely. So he comes to a place where he's in such financial crisis, he has to go down to Egypt. So that's like he struggled through those yeah. times where he just doesn't have that safety net anymore. So I'm like, well, that's really beautiful for people to know that we had this, like, these three models, and all of them lived a life where they were wealthy, all of them experienced poverty, and I think that for most people, um, we can understand the challenge of living with you know, the fear of uh, debt, the fear of poverty, the fear of losing your job, but they don't necessarily ever really consider the challenge of being wealthy. And all of the Avot had to experience both challenges and learn to live with emunah in both scenarios. And I just wanted to ask you now, you're a pretty wealthy guy now. What is the biggest challenge of being so rich? There's got to be a lot of challenges that come with that. Uh, well, I'm not sure I answer that category, but the, everything goes back to empowering other people. Everything. And I think that's the lessons uh, that we take away from the Avot, from the, from the forefathers, is their empowerment of other people to be successful and, and to use the wealth to create good things. And if you look at, you know, there's a famine also in the time of Isaac. Isaac goes and develops a planting technique that he's able to find a well near a stream. People don't dig wells near streams because they become contaminated. So he has some innovation there that does that. And he uses it to make peace with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines at the time. And as Jacob uh, comes back with wealth, he buys a piece of land just outside of Shechem, Nablus, right, in order to create neighborly relations and settle among them. And Abraham uses his wealth to buy the cave of Machpelah, the burial place for, for Sarah. You know, he's not willing to assimilate with them, but he's willing to live alongside of them. And each of them, in their own way, empowers other people to be successful. Jason, Joseph uses his wisdom to raise up the Egyptian nation, you know, and survive this famine. And I think that that's, that's really the challenge, is, is not just people of means, but people of, of, of independence. Right? It's not just financial means. It's if you're good at what you do, if you're good at uh, whatever tools of trade, how do you use that to empower other people to be successful? I think that's the biggest challenge. I think that's what Andrew Carnegie misses, mm -hmm. is that it's not about just providing for people's uh, physical needs, which you can do with money. It's about providing for their souls, and people need to work and feel fulfilled for their souls. And one of the things I tackle in the book is this notion of universal basic income. I was just about to which come it, to that. It's become like a bon ton of, of, of I think, progressives at this point. Uh, and even some technology people like Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Elon Musk. Elon Musk. 
Um, it's crazy because what it assumes is people just need money. And that's not what people need. People need fulfillment and independence. And work provides fulfillment and, and, and independence. And when you give out money and people got free time to do things, it's not like they become more creative. They become more dependent and they become lazier. And, and we see this in the story of the Garden of Eden where it, you know Adam is in the Garden of Eden. It's a priori a paradise. His basic needs are provided for. He can lift up and you know, pick the fruits of the trees and cut the wheat and he can eat the wheat. He doesn't even make bread there. He doesn't make anything. Everything is provided for him. He never talks to his wife. His wife talks to the serpent. They eat from the forbidden fruit, right? So there's no communication. And by the way, there are no children in the Garden of Eden because when man is not forced to be creative, he doesn't procreate either. There are no children in the Garden of Eden. I'm aware that Rashi does seem to indicate that yes, but in the shot, there's not. In the shot, if you just read the verses of the Torah, there is no, there are no children in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so I want, and, I want to stop here. I want you to know that that was one of my favorite parts of your book. Yeah. That's the truth. I really liked just the analysis of the, just the psukim, just the phrases that you brought, and I thought you brought out a very beautiful idea. But I, I'm not sure if I agree with you on the actual essence of it all. So let's go talk about that for a second. Sure. Okay. So we are, there's two stages to history. There's the Garden of Eden stage, which is sort of the idyllic reality that we would all strive to. And it seems as though the Torah sort of gives us this picture. We don't even last many hours in the Garden of Eden until we're already kicked out. But the goal ultimately is to get back to the Garden. It seems like that we're trying at some point to bring full redemption, total geula. We're trying to get to a place where not that there's necessarily, I don't know what the word is, universal income, but it's a different reality in which we live today. So, I'm, so wait, let me just finish. Yeah. Let me just finish. So here we go. So here's what I want to say. It could be that, you know, today we saw with Corona, people are getting handouts. They're not going back to work, right? They're just bumming. We had out. a live lab. Of right? you, we can see exactly yeah. what happened. Now, those people aren't educated in the ways of the Torah. Those people don't have the motive or the motivation. They don't have the drive yet to fix this world and make it more beautiful. But I think that the difference between galut and geulah, between exile and redemption, is one thing. Right now, we struggle in the land of Israel. We struggle to settle her. We struggle to make finances work here. And we have all these external realities that in some ways are bringing out the best within the Jewish people. They're making us more innovative. They're making us more courageous. And the Arab conflict here is making us more heroic. It's making us stronger. It's making us go out to the desert and settle the land because we have to. If we don't, we will lose it. It's making you create companies that can figure out how to help the people that are, have insurance, cut out the middle, I don't know, all these techniques in order to like fix these broken things in the world. But then there's a stage in history that we might arrive at where we don't necessarily need the external enemy to drive us forward, that the external enemy is put away and we take our swords of war and turn them into plowshares of productivity. Of productivity, that's the nevuah. The pro prophecy is that we have these things that we're battling now. We're battling to fix the world. We're battling against the Arabs. We're battling against the European Union. We're fighting now. But eventually the fight doesn't need to last forever. And then we take that koach and we turn it into plowshares of productivity. But the only way that that would work is if the Torah goes out and inspires the world. If people actually got a little bit of glimpse, because I have a feeling that you got money now, you have money, you got a lot, Hashem. you're still driven, you're still creating, you're still investing, why? Meaning you got your universal income, you got more than universal income, but there's something that's driving you that's beyond that. Now imagine if we gave everyone somehow a basic safety net that they knew, guys, you'd go take risks, 
you can go out and start a new company. And it's okay. Somehow the community, not the government, but the Jewish people, Israel, your, your, your Yishuv, it's okay. You can take those risks to go out and try to do what Elon Musk did. He took all of his money, sold PayPal, and then he took it all and he put it all on the line again. That's why people adore him so much because he's such a cool dude. And you know where he lives now? He lives in a little caravan next to his factory because he just wants, he's like, I'm post-possessions. I don't need this stuff anymore. He's really setting a good example for the rest of the non-Jewish world of like, hey, we can try to be successful, not in the material, but he's trying to like make the world electric, make it green, get us to Mars, make us interplanetary. But he's not driven by money anymore. He's driven by some other um, motive. So I feel like if we could get the world in on the why the Jewish people are here, what our mission is here, then maybe the universal income thing could be a stage after the stage that you present in the book, where right now we don't want to get bored, but we maybe do, there's a higher level of existence that Elon Musk is pointing at, and that really the Torah might be pointing at, that we want Geulah Shlema, full redemption. Okay, now your turn. Oh boy, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, so, in my book on Vayikra and Leviticus, which is only out so far in Hebrew, I get to what is the role of civic society in providing financial tools to other members of society to rise up. Okay, and by the way, I have a company I'm invested in called Rise Up, which uh, is a financial empowerment tool to, that's community-based, to enable people to rise up financially. And they're encouraged by the community to go do this, and it works, okay? And it's working big time, this company. And um, when it's a civic responsibility, and this is why the Torah says don't lend with interest. Why, why, why shouldn't I lend money with interest? Isn't that obvious way to make money? Because the point is to create a civic bond that if I'm invested in you, What's a loan without interest? It's an investment. I want you to be independently successful, back to what I said before. So there is a set of mechanisms in the Torah that are financial, that create what I call a brotherhood economy or the responsibility economy, which enables people to get the means to rise up. That's very different from universal basic income. When I create a bond with you, we're both invested physically in your success. Okay, we're both invested mentally in your success. We're both trying to be creative and partner together to do that. There's an investment. That's not the same thing as getting an anonymous check from the government every month. It's very different. An anonymous check from the government every month causes people to be indolent, bored, and unproductive and uncreative. And this has been tried. And I know there's a million experiments going on now. And like every news item today, everyone speaks from their own position. And those who wanted to be successful call it successful. And those who wanted to be unsuccessful call it unsuccessful. And that's why we need timeless values and timeless texts that come from the book of, of Genesis. And the story of universal basic income, like I said, is Adam had everything he needed. No kids, no creativity, nothing. He's thrown out of the Garden of Eden and he makes bread, and he deals with the thorns and thistles. Now, why is this? Because like you said, if I'm planting on rocky hilltops here, you need to work and the plant needs to work to take roots. The tree, your fig trees that you plant, your olive trees, take root in these rocky hilltops. When they finally take root here, because of the struggle, they produce amazing fruit. We're put here to contend, to work hard, to drive, to be motivated, to struggle with the challenges Presented by the outside world, the diplomatic world, the land, lack of water, etc., because that brings out human creativity. I gave a class maybe four weeks ago in Teaneck, New Jersey, on the Garden of Eden. And I think there's three approaches to the Garden of Eden. I'll adopt the third one. Uh, 
Okay, one garden of Eden is it's idyllic to the point that you said. And we're all trying to get back there. And in fact, in the Talmud, there's a lot of stories about this. If you do this and do that, you'll get back to the Garden uh, of Eden. They create this idyllic world. We can get into maybe the, uh, what the reason that the Talmud gets back then. And that's what we're striving to get back to some idyllic world. I don't buy it for what it's worth. There's a second approach uh, proffered by uh, Rabbi David Svi Hoffman of, of, of Germany and Rabbi Elchanan Samet, Rabbi Dr. Elchanan Samet, who lives not far from here, which is Garden of Eden, that was adolescence. Man discovers his sexuality. Man, you know, runs astray a little bit, like many people in adolescence. He sins, and then he goes out and grows out of it eventually, and that's kind of the rest of the, of the Torah. My view of Garden of Eden is that it was a failed experiment, and that's, that's not where man is. Man is meant to struggle. Man is meant to contend and improve the world for the next generation. And we're not going to get to an idyllic place. Yes, maybe we'll get rid of wars. But Isaiah does not say, beat your swords into, into uh, I don't know. Plowshares. No, he says beat it into plowshares. He doesn't say beat your sword into a hammock. Okay? He doesn't say beat your sword into a, into a whirlpool, a jacuzzi. He says beat it into plowshares. Well, what's a plow? People drag the plow. Animals drag that plow in the time of Isaiah. People walk behind the plow. What he says is, you'll spend less time warring with other people and more time creating the productivity that comes out of the land to feed the human population yeah, around the Adam world. Even Adam and Eve, they were told two commands, le'ovda, to work the land, ve'leshomra, and to guard the land. But they could not do it or didn't have any motivation to do it in the Garden of Eden because everything was provided. Ah, so now so let's get back to So they're commanded, but it doesn't matter how much you're commanded. If you're not forced to do it, you become lazy and slothful. Okay, so here's the question. Could it be at some point with the proper education and inspiration that a human being could arrive at a place where they're, they've lived through the Garden of Eden reality, gone humanity through this new struggle reality, only at one point in time to find the internal motivation to continue to make the world more beautiful and better without the necessity of doing it or else. But that actually- It's not or else, by the way. It's, we, we, we gotta keep going, right? And so there's, you know, the, the Bible in Deuteronomy, in Devarim, says that what God's worried about is that you'll come to Israel and you find these beautiful homes that you didn't build and the vines that you didn't plant and the wells that you didn't dig. And by the way, you'll become really successful and you say, I did it, all me. And so the Bible's concerned about the slothfulness that comes from wealth and prosperity. And so... I read that verse differently. Can I tell you how I read that verse? Sure. So it says like this. Yeah. Right. Hashem may be saying. Because what does it say? You have to finish the verse. No. He gives you the power to do amazing things. It's a challenge to humanity. Use your God-given talents to go improve the world and continue improving it. Don't be slothful because you've made it. Ah, that's true not to be slothful, but I think there's actually saying like, Go say that. Look at Amisra, what we've done. We've made the best economy in the Middle East, the strongest military in the Middle East. You guys are amazing. The Jewish people are powerful. Just remember, though, who gave you that koach. But yeah. maybe a way that we're actually supposed to say, yeah, man, we're strong now. 
I think we're supposed to it's achieve. Nice. I think we're supposed to That's achieve nice strength. Thing. Yeah, I'm not sure we're supposed <laughs> to say it though. All right, so wait, okay, so now I want to let's go. Let's go a little bit deeper now. A little bit deeper. You know the story of Shlomo Amelech. I you know adore uh, David Amelech, Shlomo, all of the kings of Israel. Yeah. And so Shlomo Amelech has this moment. He's the new king, and Hashem appears to him in a dream, and it says, "Make a wish, any wish. You get anything you want." You know. On that story, the Aladdin story was created, where Aladdin gets three wishes. Yeah. Shlomo Amelech gets one wish. Yeah. All right, so you have now the Shlomo Amelech gift. You can make one wish, anything you want. What is the one wish you would ask for? That God should give me strength to keep working as long as I can. And, uh, and, that my wife and I uh, will see generations of children and grandchildren who continue to settle and improve the land and the people here. That's, uh, that's the, you know, it's about family at the end of the day and uh, it's a baton race. And, uh, you know, I, I was once, I've, I've told this story once before. I was once at a bar mitzvah, and I saw an amazing man whose name was uh, Bernard Hochstein. He was an early builder, I would say, of the land of Israel, and he was honored by Jerusalem at some point. And he was in his 90s for sure, and it was, I think, his grandson's bar mitzvah. And I saw him sitting there off in the corner with his wife, and they were holding hands and looking out around uh, at what happened. I go, wow, that's amazing. This man has kind of kept going into his 90s to kind of keep helping the, the people of Israel, the land of Israel, and you know, people around the world to, to go do this and, ha and, uh, and look at the, you know, the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren he sees around, and what a, what a blessing. Wow, all right, let's, let's take it from there. You have now your great-grandchildren all around you, and everything is erased from Michael Eisenberg's life, everything. You don't you have no more companies, no, none of your books, everything disappears, and all you have now to give over to your great-grandchildren for the rest of the generations of the Eisenbergs, you have three truths that you can give over to them because everything else is taken away. They won't, they won't know about your companies, they won't know about prosperity, the tree of life, three truths. What would be the three truths that you would want to pass over to the next generations that you would give to your children and grandchildren? Get married young and have kids. That's a good one. Uh, the Torah and Halakha the Jewish law matters a lot in life and is a very worthwhile life to lead. And life's about service and enabling other people to be, to be successful on their own. And they should do whatever they're doing for their wife and family, but always be in service of, of other people. And, by the way, don't forget, take care of your grandparents and great-grandparents, too. <laughs> I love that. You should know, Ari Abramowitz taught me a line that was taught by his grandfather. And he said, it's not about how many servants you have, but it's about how many people you serve. Yeah, so that's a good, good line. line. I like that. Okay, and yeah. so this will be the last question that we'll end off here. This here is um, the embassy of Judea. That's how we see this place. Yeah. This is the heart. And so when I think about greatness, I think about excellence. So I'm asking you now, what is it to be a Jew in the world? I think there's three parts to it. Um, one is a confidence 
in a multi-thousand year heritage of values and principles that matter as much today as they did 3,000, 2,000, and 1,000 years ago. And that if all of the faiths around the world spring from Judaism in one form or another, which they do, um, at least the Judeo-Christian faith and Islam in some measure as well, um, there is much truth in uh, the canonical texts of Judaism and in the Messorah, in the traditions passed on. And so we need to have the confidence to say that with confidence around the world and respect ourselves enough that other people respect us and respect other people enough so that they respect us. And so that's number one. Number two is to be responsible for much more than yourself. I think um, being what's called a Jew or a child of Abraham, which I prefer on some level, is, is to be called on. It's to be asked to take responsibility for this principled way of living. And that responsibility is unshirkable. And you need to feel it at all times, maybe heavy at some times. And uh, we should want to be responsible for making other people successful, independent, um, and, and responsible. Because if you're independent, you can be responsible for other people. And I think that's a message we're trying to spread, which is take responsibility for other people. I often say to college kids, if you're in this room in, in Princeton, where I, just, where I just spoke, you're like in the lucky 1% of humanity. You've got to take five people on your shoulders and bring them to the 21st century. And I, I think that's part of the role. And so that's, that's the second thing. And the third thing is, I know there's a lot of divisiveness in society today, particularly when you go online and listen to people ranting. Um, but I actually think there is uh, an emerging um, voice of faith and responsibility. And I think part of the job of, of our people now that we have a homeland is to, is to radiate out this notion that being a person of faith is to take responsibility for other people. It's not exclusive. It's not, we got, we're small people. We're really a small people, tiny. But we got a big message that should impact Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, and other people of faith out there who believe that there's something higher than themselves and, uh, and others. And I think we, we need to do that. Michael, thank you. That was just absolutely spectacular. Mm -hmm. Tree of life and prosperity. Michael Eisenberg. Thank you, Jeremy. Yes. This is great. You're, you're a tough questioner. No, I said this is a good book, but also the one on Megillat Esther, I know that's not what we're promoting now, is also very, very insightful. It's innovative. I loved it. And so thank you very thank much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy.